0: we
1: I like the drum beat to Ballroom Blitz. No, I think Billy Cobham was the session musician for this, uh, for this record. You're kidding, right? <laughs> yes, I'm joking. <laughs> it, the, <laughs> the most intricate drum beat of all time.
0: You will find that they come to time. Oh, for
1: making your down. mind up.
2: Go. You it, oh. Come on, Morris, sing along.
1: You I haven't heard this song in 40 years, and there's a reason why I haven't heard it in 40 years. Say the rap.
0: Before you decide, that the time to run.
1: making your mind up. Don't let your inhibition. Come on, you know the bridge. Take you back to hand. Pure glass. Don't let others change your mind.
2: Key change is required for all Eurovision entries.
1: One of the greatest pieces of music ever written. (laughs) For making your mind up. Oh, and they had Jimmy Page as the session musician playing guitar on this as well. Clearly. Just the best.
2: That's I think the second key change (laughs) Come on
1: Morris Sing it You know these words For making your mind up Morris is about as good as actually the singers on the song I am better than them I I turned down the part in Buck's I couldn't do the dance moves That I don't believe Turkey, right? Superb. I'll tell you, the standard at the Eurovision that year must have been really bad if this was the the winner. Come on, on, bring us home, Morris.
2: Come on. Lean in.
1: Don't leave anything on the stage. (laughs) For making your mind up. Making your mind up. Making your mind up amazing, yes, amazing. Oh, I, I mean, just superb. thank you, thank you, super, Thank yes. you for reminding me of that song because I really, like I said, I hadn't heard it in what year did it win, like 78 or I, I don't know, like uh, a long time, yes,
2: ago. no, 80. Oh, 80. Sorry.
1: 1980. It, it
2: was... Well, what song is that, Morris? Why don't you tell us what song that is?
1: What it's called Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz. And how did it enter your life? Oh, it won the Eurovision Song Contest. But before it won the Eurovision Song Contest, we had to sit through a song for Europe, which was where the, um, the best of British talent would compete to compete in the Eurovision Song Contest. So... If that was the winning song, you can imagine what the other material was like. So I I don't actually remember. But yeah, so and that was the number one record. Um, Little known fact about Bucks Fizz, but Mark Ronson's father was their manager. Wow. Yeah. You'd think they would have funkier beats. Mark was very, very young when that came out. So I don't think he had any part in the... uh, The making of that song. But there were some uh, dance moves that came out of it, if I remember correctly. Um, Mm. You know, the Brotherhood of Man, who had won, I think, in maybe 78 or 77. with um, Save Your Kisses for Me. Save All Your Kisses for Me, which really, I mean, if we thought Make Your Mind Up was bad, Save Your Kisses for Me was even worse. So welcome to Disinfect, where we air
2: out music's worst songs you might tell that we're already in process we're airing out one of the worst songs um bucks fizz making your mind up and we've got that song going not only to um bring back primal terrifying memories for morris as a young child
1: in england um forced to watch eurovision no i I wasn't forced to watch i watched it voluntarily because there was nothing else on television uh huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Yes, sure. Uh huh. I, I volunteered. In any event, um, this is a special
2: edition of Disinfect. we it's a Eurovision uh, centric edition where we're going to analyze the worst Eurovision winners in the contest's
1: history. So it's it must be it must be a multi series show then because I think <laughs> like, like, how many editions are we doing it? It's just one. <laughs> <laughs> What I would like you to do, Morris, is sort of,
2: you know, if you could just tell us what Eurovision is from, you know,
1: your traumatized perspective. How did it enter your life? Well, yeah, Eurovision um, actually was a a song contest um, that was taken extremely seriously. Um, I I mean, I don't know the exact uh, history, but I think it started in the 1950s um 1956 okay great um based on
2: a italian um italian festival called the san remo festival got it however the first edition was in switzerland and the entire event was intended as a pan-european uh summit for
1: popular music in the post-war era right so it was kind of bringing europe back together again so a, a way of unifying you know you had the the uh european union um, but not all the countries who participated in the Eurovision Song Contest were members of the European Union. So this was just another way of bringing them in. And then you had sort of outliers as well. Um, Turkey would be involved, and Israel would be involved as well, both of those. Basically, if you could afford to host the Eurovision
2: right. event, then you suddenly were somehow uh, well, part of the European I,
1: Union you for know, that I don't think anyone night. could really afford it back then. Um uh, to be honest with you, except for Switzerland, and that's why they did the first one. Um, but yeah, so it was it was a big deal. It was um, a lot of national pride um, was involved. Um, you know, uh, what you're saying is every European country fielded its
2: own entry. Yes, yes, um, and each one was a was a pop song, Correct. sort of to show how hip each country was, essentially, and well, to bring together the entire European um, community. With song,
1: well, music being a uniter, basically, uh, which is what what music's always done. And um, this event would happen where everybody would come, and you would have uh, each in the countries would be the judges, and they would vote on it. So it was something that you had the judges from each country, and they would vote on the best song. So you would have in each country beforehand the preliminary rounds to find the actual winner. And then that winner would then enter into the song contest, and you would so get. It's, some, so it's like the world. It's like the World Cup. It's the of World Pop Cup of music. music. Um, uh, and you would get some. Except for none of the teams are good. Well, this is this is not actually true because you did get um, well-known artists um, entering it. Uh, for example, Cliff Richard. When when Cliff Richard entered it in, I think seventy three, with "Power to All My Friends," he was already like been a superstar in England for at least over a decade. Uh, Lulu was already famous. Uh, Sandy Shaw, who I think was the first British winner with Puppet on a String, 1967. She was an up-and-coming pop star. Um, Dana, who um, had, uh, I think it was All Kinds of Everything, 1970. This is all from memory, by the way, guys. I am just remembering this from my traumatized youth. Um, she was not as well-known. Um, and then, of course, the the biggest, I'd say the most famous artist to win the Eurovision Song Contest was ABBA. Um, and I think they were already known in Sweden when they won. We'd never heard of them. 1973? 1974. Four. 1974, they won. And yeah, so, just-
2: so Eurovision brought ABBA to the world, yep. essentially. But then yep. what was funny was ABBA won, and it propelled them to superstardom and still, nobody outside of Europe had ever heard of Eurovision. It's, it was like it was like a one-time event, like a volcano
1: erupting. And unfortunately, with the success of ABBA, uh, I think the following year, uh, or maybe the year after, Holland entered their version of ABBA, um, and they won with the song "Ding, Dang, Dong." When was the first time that Eurovision entered your life as a sentient being? Sandy Shaw, Puppet on a String, 1967. Although I don't remember her winning it, but um, the song was played constantly on the radio for a good few years after that because that was the winner. That was the one that had won for us. So it was it was a big deal. And, of course, every Eurovision Song Contest I saw um, – When I started watching it, would mention it, Um, and also um, just as a side note, my dad actually worked with Sandy Shaw's then husband, so so that's how I knew about her as well. And that she wore no shoes—that that that was it. So we played a little Bucks
2: (laughs) Fizz, and when that came out, you know, how cool was Bucks Fizz? In the you know, if you were like a really discerning music listener,
1: what did Bucks Fizz mean to you? Well, I think you've got to know what a box fit is. Box fizz is the name of a drink, which is the the the, the drink that sort of like um, Sh- Sharon's order when they go to a club. You know, have a box fizz, please. You know, <laughs> so it's like champagne and orange juice. Or, I, don't, I don't know, but the the type of drink it was kind of is is a. Epitomizes what the, kind of song it was. Uh, Epitomizes the song and the group. And at that time, there were there were a lot of those types of groups. There was a band called Dollar, um, right, which were a, a, a male and female duo, um, you know. But this sort of chirpy, perky band. I mean, I'm I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure Bucks Fizz won one of the sort of entertainment shows that we used to have uh, in England, uh, like something like. Um, uh, you're a Star or Opportunity Knocks. Uh, and and it's good that you guys never saw any of those shows because they really were bad. But of course, we only had three channels when I was growing up in England. So half the country were riveted to <laughs> one of these terrible shows that we had to watch. So extrapolating from ABBA's success in Eurovision, when Bucks Fizz won
2: Eurovision, I feel like Bucks Fizz... For anglophiles, became sort of like a default reference for the cheesiest, most industrially made crap pop music, shamelessly going for chart position, um, manufactured junk. Yes. Would you say that was accurate? I think that is very
1: a very accurate thing. Yes. Very very accurate. Yes.
2: By the way, I'd like to point out we've been focusing on covers here at Disinfect, yes. and in fact, the songs that you hear on Eurovision are in fact covers. Um, they, the the person singing often is not the songwriter. Right? I'd say 99%. Correct. They're Correct. The person singing is never a the songwriter. They're actually covering a song that basically the country that submitted the songs brings together its top songwriting pop smiths to create the ultimate three-minute heat-seeking pop music missile. Yes. Now, the problem here is that Estonia has no top pop music song smiths. I did not know that. Well, like, I mean, name them. Name <laughs> them. Name the top producers from Azerbaijan. I,
1: are they even in your Eurovision? Your I, yes, I, yes, I, yes. I, they, they must be recent, um, recent editions.
2: So, yeah. So, so, essentially, these are manufactured songs designed to appeal to the widest possible audience, even audiences that do not speak the language of the country, which often results in very badly sung English lyrics yeah, um, where the singer clearly does not understand
1: what they're singing about. Can I, can I, can I just add something that um, about that song um, that was famous about it that we aren't able to actually see because we're just listening to the music? But I think the thing that actually won them the New York Vision Song Contest was towards the end of the song – one of the girls does a twirl and they rip her skirt off. And this is true. That was the moment. I think it was, I don't know, maybe Cheryl Baker or something was the, was the girl, but that was right. the moment. I think that was the, the, the wow moment. I think every act needs that sort of wow factor, you know, brotherhood of man had that little stupid dance for save your kisses for me. And Buck's Fizz had that, ripping the skirt moment. And we looked forward to it every time they performed the song. It was kind of like um it was kind of like a almost like an intentional wardrobe malfunction. Correct. No, but it was definitely part of the act. So um if we could just stick with Bucks Fizz for a little bit because the show
2: is only going to be about Bucks
1: Fizz Okay. unfortunately they then had other songs. They they then thought they were good and the other songs were terrible. So I just want to very quickly just say the land of make believe, and the camera never lies, were just even worse than make your mind up. Bucks Fizz greatest hits. Greatest it was hit.
2: in. It was in the glove compartment of every Opal in England. Is it Cortina, Ford Cortina, yes, exactly. <laughs> with the, with the fuzzy, it, by,
1: on cassette with the furry dice. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. If you wanted to alienate your date, you put in the Bucks <laughs> Fizz cassette in your Cortina. <laughs> Pure class. Um, so yeah. So how has how has Eurovision evolved? You know, how has it has it become greater? You know, how have we seen it? How have we seen
1: Eurovision
0: evolve well, since I, those
1: heady days? Well, I think it's expanded the countries that that uh, participate in it. Um, uh, so you have, as you were saying, Azerbaijan. I, I did not know. I haven't watched Eurovision for many, many years. Um, I, which is okay for me. I mean, my life has gone on and I've lived a, a fruitful and good life without it being a part of it. So, um, but it's definitely expanded. And, you know, I thought that the, the movie, um, on Netflix with Will Farrell, which I thought was superb. I, I absolutely loved it. So, so what Morris is referring to is
2: there's, there's actually a movie called Eurovision on Netflix starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. And um, it's, it's a story of, of Iceland trying to lose um, the Eurovision contest because they can't afford to host it. So they find the absolute worst act they can find which turns out to actually win, of course, which is actually based on a little bit of Eurovision history that we get into in the main episode. Right. So um, with the Eurovision movie appearing on Netflix, starring a big American star, you'd think that people in America had actually heard of Eurovision, yeah. the phenomenon, and in fact they have not. But Eurovision, when it's broadcast... I think it reaches hundreds of millions of viewers in countries all over the world. It's actually one of the biggest annual events of its kind. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing over, you know, I believe there's almost 60 entries, all of which I watched and listened to for this episode, I might add.
1: Oh, God. Um,
2: Almost none of them are good. Thank you for doing that on my behalf because I wouldn't have done that. I did it for science. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, so because um, Morris has been uh, self-isolating, from Eurovision now for at least a decade or two three 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 decades of zero Eurovision Thank um goodness. we fi- we figured we'd go to the source and really get some experts on Eurovision to speak to us but experts that have enough uh American snark to sort of put it into perspective so this year Eurovision is taking place in Rotterdam in the Netherlands um, it was supposed to take place in Rotterdam last year but the pandemic happened, um, and so they had to put off the year entirely. Um, the previous year, in, um, Holland had won, so that gave them the, the right to host the event, which, is, which always gives things a little bit of a boost. You know, Again, it's like the World Cup. It's like, what's the host country for the World Cup, essentially? That's the kind of anticipation Eurovision engenders. So in order to really have people speaking from the ground, we approached two people who actually live in the Netherlands who are experiencing Eurovision mania as we speak. Their names are Greg Shapiro and Rob Andrespoord. I know Greg and Rob from a very famous comedy theater called Boom Chicago in Amsterdam. They're both Americans who went to Boom Chicago to do improv comedy in the style of like Second City and the Groundlings. And while they were there, they became some of the best known comedians in the Netherlands, um, at least American ones. I know that's like Jumbo Shrimp. Anyway, these guys have been watching Eurovision now for decades, but they came to it as aliens. Um, And so they're really the ones that to give us the take from the streets on the awe-inspiring anticipation for this year's Eurovision. And they put it into perspective as only snarky Americans can. So without further ado... Disinfect Disinfect goes goes, to to Eurovision. Oh, we're here with Disinfect. A lot of people don't know that Disinfect actually has a chapter in the Netherlands. And now you are being exposed to the wing of Disinfect that lives in Amsterdam, Holland. There's a reason why I chose our guest today. It's because they actually live in Europe. They know what Eurovision is. However, they are also American, which means they are not blinded by the geopolitical morass and fromage and ethnic instruments that often accompany Eurovision entries. So, uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guests today. Um, going in alphabetical order, we have Rob Andrusplord. Um, Rob... Say say hello, Rob. Hello, Matt Teal. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Um, It's it's an honor just being nominated. Yes, I do. I do let guests talk occasionally. Uh, Rob Anzisport has been a supporter of Disinfect since the beginning. He's actually one of those guys like if you if you have a podcast, you need all your friends to listen to your podcast. And Rob is actually one of the friends that actually listens.
3: I've been a purveyor of all podcasts since way back in the early 2000s. And most podcasts come and go. But it feels like Disinfect, it, it's got some gravitas. It's got a foundation. It's got you as an uber fan and academic of music. So uh, with your partner uh,
2: in the Disinfect, I choose you. Well, thank you, Rob. So give me a little background on Rob. Um, Rob is a comedian, originally from Boston, Massachusetts. He moved to Amsterdam, Holland, the Netherlands, many decades ago to perform with a theater company called Boom Chicago, where he was a mentor and performed with Seth Meyers, Jordan Peel, Jason Sudeikis, lots of other famous people, but he's here today because he truly understands music he's had a long-running show called legends of rob which, which if he wasn't such a narcissist he would call it legends of rock where he actually discusses musical history while making you laugh uh thank you rob for coming and being on disinfect
3: it's nice to be here matt
2: um did i leave anything out in your illustrious biography um oh yes i did oh i did Hold on a second. Okay. Rob is probably best known in the United States for his appearance in Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay, where he played random Amsterdam stoner. Yes. He has also been a hooligan in the red light district in the film Snapshots and an American tourist in the film Sint. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. That is all true. So with us today as well is another friend from the Netherlands, Greg Shapiro. Uh, Greg is a luminary in the Netherlands. He's known as the American guy in the Netherlands to Dutch people. Would you say that's accurate, Rob?
3: Uh, I, I would. I would even go as far as to say that Greg would be called like the American Nederlander.
2: Yes. So that means he's basically gone native. Yes. Yes. Greg and I grew up together, actually. Uh, We spent many a ridiculous time together before he became an international comedian. Yes. And um, so Greg also moved to the Netherlands many decades ago to perform with Boom Chicago. Um, And he's since gone on to write many books about the experience of living in in Amsterdam, many of them funny. The ones that are not, we won't discuss. Um, Give me some of the titles of those books, Greg.
4: Right. Well, you know... Since I got my Dutch uh, passport, as well as my American passport, yeah, I wrote How to Be Orange, uh, How to Be Dutch, The Quiz, and uh, The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales.
2: So by the way, if you live in Holland, you often see Greg, um, he'll be in some random commercial where he's the wacky American guy. He'll be some guy on TV where he's the wacky American guy. And he, he too has been cast in a series of illustrious movies. He starred with Naomi Watts in uh, the film. What's it called? What's that film called? Down. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Her career went up. Greg's, the metaphor is there. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just kidding. Zing. Zing. I helped her. I, I helped Naomi Watts with her American accent, though. So anyway, these two have been stereotyped for a long time as the Americans... The, the Americans in Europe, like whenever they want, need the American take. They go, you know, they can only go to two people, which are Rob Ford and Greg Shapiro. And I would say, actually, you guys are uniquely chosen for this particular episode because you've had decades of immersion in European culture, and you've actually been exposed to Eurovision as natives. I think I probably was. Initially exposed to Eurovision from you guys or some of some of the other expats in Amsterdam, tell me a little bit of your experience of, of Eurovision how, and sort of explain the show and, and 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 how you discovered it.
3: When I first moved to the Netherlands in Europe in 1996, I about two months into us arriving uh, in about uh, April and May. There was a contest that we saw on television called the Eurovision Song Contest. And before that, all I knew about Eurovision was that ABBA was the band that won it and got their claim to fame, and also kind of the last band to make it huge by winning the Eurovision
2: Song Contest. So so Rob brings up an interesting point, which is pretty much the only way that Americans have heard of Eurovision is because of ABBA. ABBA created what's probably the Citizen Kane of Eurovision songs, which is Waterloo. And it was their breakout hit. Uh, 1975, I Four. think, is that right? Four, 1974. And despite this incredible international launch, Americans and other countries have no fucking idea what Eurovision is. So go on, continue. Sorry.
3: it's I, And you're not wrong. How America has the World Series, uh, that's only America and parts of Canada, uh, Eurovision is Europe, the Middle East, parts of Africa, and Australia,
2: and hell, Russia thrown in there as well. They can compete. Eastern too. Europe, all over the place. Mm-hmm. If you've ever wondered what pop pop music trends are in Belarus, you know there's Eurovision.
3: Uh,
2: and uh, after
3: watching uh, the first, you understand how campy it can be, uh, and you. Really lean into the mass appeal of fabulously low-hanging fruit. That's what Eurovision is.
2: Greg, do you want to tell us your journey about with Eurovision? So, I mean, I
4: moved to the Netherlands right around the same time as Rob, and my intro to Eurovision. uh, And again, I had the same basic knowledge. You know, abba. I guess it's a thing they still do. Let's see. I I married a, a Dutch woman. And her cousin is Florida Huda, who is a, a, a cartoonist and, uh, a, and a member of the homosexual community, which is, and which is invited, significant,
2: which is significant in Eurovision culture.
4: It, well, yeah. So he, I believe he invited me to this Eurovision viewing party and he said, you cannot miss this. Um, and he, you know, said it's, 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 it. I mean, it's kind of a gay thing for us. Uh, but I mean, it's just, it's so incredible. We can't just consider this a gay thing. Like you, you have to come, if you want to be European, uh, you have to come take you have part to be a little gay. in this. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I was there to like represent the hetero numbers or, or something to, uh, keep it inclusive. Um, but, uh um, but indeed, uh, the, that was a sort of uh, context. I Rob used the term "camp," uh, and 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 they they were Dutch, but they were not watching the Dutch broadcast. They were watching Graham Norton on BBC commenting, who's the most most catty comment? Yes, uh, th- that is Eurovision to me, not just you know the campy costumes and the uh, sappy uh, songs, but the. There's just scathing commentary <laughs> from. Ironic Irishman. Uh, going
3: back to what Greg was saying uh, uh, about opening up the community of viewers in uh, the Eurovision uh, community, you don't have to be flamboyantly homosexual to enjoy Eurovision, but you can pretend to be for the contest. Camp is universal if you let it. It's, it's absolutely and positively supporting ideas. And that's one criteria amongst many uh, that I look for in a good performance at Eurovision camp is up there.
2: I got the sense when I visiting you guys in Amsterdam watching Eurovision that in the same way that Halloween has been sort of a get out of jail free card for women to dress in the in their most uh, risqué fantasy outfits, I think Eurovision sort of opens the door for everybody to be a little bit gay when they're watching it and embrace kitsch and embrace their you know it's, it's a it's a time for acceptance and flamboyance except when it's not about acceptance and flamboyance
4: about the uh cultural significance you know it's true i was introduced to eurovision as a a, a, a gay thing and then let's expand this for everybody uh, i think it has become that actually and there's even a film now on Netflix or whatever with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Uh, it's just called Eurovision, I think. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? I have. It's so enjoyable. It's a masterpiece. Enjoyable. But, I mean, if you follow those main characters, and this is, you know, Americans who are, you know, trying to understand this phenomenon of Eurovision. I assume not just the characters, but, like, the actual screenwriters and producers. Um, they... Uh, there's a certainly there's that flamboyant there's the gay culture kind of element, but I think the main characters are very much just letting out their inner nerd. Uh, yes, and that to me is more what Eurovision is uh, has become actually.
2: So you're saying it's a place where the outsiders can come inside? I think so. Yeah, I'm getting skeptical. I'm getting skeptical looks from my European brothers here.
3: Uh, I wouldn't uh, disagree with you, Matt I would absolutely agree with you In, in past years Transsexuals have won uh, Eurovision From uh, Israel with Dana International uh, with uh, 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 Diva, the song that won from Israel And then Conchita Wurst from Austria Austria
2: won. Yes, Austria Easily the friendliest country to gays in the world not uh,
3: exactly, and yet she won
2: by the way. Conchita Worst, what was her song? Was um, Rise Like a Phoenix. What's the Conchita Rise Like a Phoenix? Rise Like the Phoenix. Conchita Worst performance of Rise Like the Phoenix is maybe one of the greatest performances of anything ever in history. Okay, we're here to sort of talk about the worst Eurovision winners, but Conchita Worst is not the worst. Unfortunately, unfortunately, comedians <laughs> here are like, "Dude, don't go there." Um, no, but it really was kind of moving to see a uh, a trans person with a beard singing uh, a twenty nineteen version of "I Will Survive," invested with emotion and and um, passion and personal experience
4: and original. Yeah, there was a, a kind of a knockoff version of that same concept uh a couple years later from i believe uh, france
2: and it just died it just didn't work there's no. only one conchita worst yeah if you're going to be the best be conchita worst but, you know this is why they're comedians and i'm podcast.
4: <laughs> oh but um dan stevens in the movie eurovision uh oh my god as the russian character
2: just nailed it. I think he deserved an Academy Award for that. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the greatest performances ever.
4: No, no. What do you mean? I I like
0: women. It's
2: hard to make a comedy <laughs> about Eurovision because the, the original shit is just so funny. The thin line of satire, it's already there. So the, the movie Eurovision is a masterpiece. But from a comedic standpoint, making something funny that's already funny. Yeah. You're absolutely
4: right. Matt Deal, we had to make fun of Donald Trump, you know, for for four years for an international audience. They got it. (laughs) And not like in America where it was like, please stop. But in in Europe, it was like, oh my God, can you believe this guy? Uh, And at some point, you know, I would do the voice, okay. And, you know, people would say like, oh my God, how did you think of that crazy joke? And I would say, I... I, I'm just reading the words.
2: <laughs> just it's read just the, words, the transcription.
4: Just the transcript with the voice, and and then you know you don't want to do too much.
2: So wait, so we're, we, we've been we've been in a lot of places with Eurovision right now. What are some other key things about Eurovision that someone in the United States would not understand? Uh,
4: I was talking briefly about the geopolitical uh, aspect, you know, and there are countries that have. Uh, Not competed before. Uh, So when I started getting into uh, Eurovision, that was right around the time of, you know, mid-90s. That was the time of uh, their uh, pretty big civil war on the continent in Yugoslavia. And just in preparing for this podcast, I went back through the Wikipedia, some of the history. And I think it was like 1989 that Yugoslavia won – Eurovision with a completely forgettable number called "Rock Me Baby," but uh, that was the Never last. Never
2: has there been a pop song called "Rock Me Baby" ever.
4: <laughs> but I mean, that was the last time that Yugoslavia uh, was an entry. I think in any global competition. Uh, by like, 92 ninety two, ninety three, there was civil war. Ninety five, there were you know atrocities, um, and then uh you started getting the independent countries of the former Yugoslavia be, you know entering Eurovision and i think what was it like 2006 or 7 that serbia won that you know was a moment really not politically necessarily you know but like culturally holy moly and in the voting all of like neighboring countries or the sympathetic Countries like the pro Russia or former Soviet Republic, you know, countries um, that are friendly to Serbia. And that very much plays a role in the voting uh, and in which country gets to host it the following year
3: kind of like when you're watching the, uh, uh, the the World Series and you have the National League and the American League and your team doesn't get in. You always root for the team who beat your team. And I feel like that's what Eurovision will be. If your country doesn't fare too well, well, then all your neighbors are going to support you. Eurovision isn't so much a political, we're voting for you because you suffered all of these uh, atrocities. Um, it's uh, Eurovision has a rule that no politics can be played whatsoever. You can't uh, have political slogans on your shirt or your costumes. There was an incident in 2019 where Madonna's dancers, as they left the stage, revealed a Palestinian and Israeli flag as they left. And she was fined for that. It's in the rule book: support your country, but no political statements.
2: Although, what's interesting is I forget what year it won, but uh, Jalala, nineteen forty-four. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. From the Ukraine I was from the Ukraine. I forced myself to listen to all, not not just listen, watch. I I forced myself to watch every Eurovision winner in preparation for this podcast. But anyway, what I what I what I did was I sort of made notes of like what songs were actually good and the Jalala I was like the Jalala song I was like wow this is like a real song this is like a normal song and it was like I don't know if you've heard I don't know if you, how well you know this song what, do you, do you, what year did that come out do we, I have it somewhere
4: was it 2016 it was right after Russia invaded the Crimea and got away with it and Ukraine sang this uh, song of, of of woe and, and tragedy
2: so so, so the song 1944 is this, like, incredible... It's not even a... It's like a soulful European dance song. It, it's, it was very current to the pop music aesthetic of the, the moment it came out in, which is very unique for Eurovision because Eurovision is always like, you know, Alanis Morissette will come out in 1995, and then, like, 2001, someone sounds like Alanis Morissette on Eurovision.
4: Oh, my God. The winners from... Oh, what was it? The winners from like Portugal came in with a, a song called Everybody. That was, ba- and that was, oof, it was like, come on, everybody,
2: do that conga <laughs> from
4: Estonia, from Estonia in like 1999.
2: Yeah. the so, so Miami sound machine, got bogarted.
0: <laughs> there's a lot of that.
2: There's a lot of that. Um, but anyway, so this Jalala song, it, it actually has kind of like a two-step beat. There's, you know, there's like kind of, that kind of came back that kind of like UK garage, you know, a Luna George, you know, there's this kind of, it was a very old Quran song. And then what is it about? It is about the uh, oppression of the Crimean, uh Tartar uh, population and oppression and how that oppression began and continues on. And we must never forget. So that is a light, non-political, Eurovision song that created
4: do you know what it is it's it's pure nationalism it's victimhood i mean if slobodan milosevic was trying out this same song everybody would say he cut it out <laughs> not cool but since ukraine was clearly the victim at that point um you know in 2008 when russia invaded georgia i believe georgia Uh, came out with a song. It didn't win, but I think their entry for Eurovision that year was, we don't want to put in. We don't want to put in. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to put in. Wow. Uh, And I think that song got cut because it was a little too on the nose.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And in 2008, Russia definitely won.
2: Yeah. So, but they had to give one to Russia so that they didn't like have an international incident.
3: We were asked to come up with our favorite uh uh worst <laughs> uh Eurovision songs and uh, the one I picked was the winner of 2008 and it was the Russian uh uh submission uh from a gentleman by the Dima. Yes, Dima Bilan uh with a song called Believe. It's a typical Eurovision style song, but he makes the key mistake of taking it too seriously. Like there's a couple of criteria with every Eurovision song that you've got to abide by. And if you go over the recipe just a little, it's just going to lose it, at least for me. Now, Russia won that year. And, you know, this is not the first election Russia rigged. Uh, It started even way back then, I would say So having a political statement You can possibly get away with it If you do it really subtly But there is no outright political activism Allowed to be demonstrated While the show is going on Just like on Saturday Night Live Lauren frowns on improvisation Uh, Eurovision frowns on activism Political activism of any kind
2: But then it's covertly done all over the place
3: uh, covertly if you can get away with it uh, good for you uh, Madonna did not also her performance awful
2: before we hear Dima Bilan's masterpiece of Eurovision from fromage I don't know what the Russian word for cheese is I think we have to point out Rob brought up some very good points which are there are some rules to Eurovision they're broken a lot but there are some rules which are song must be three minutes long you have to be, I think, 16 years old to compete. And the reason that is, is there was a 13-year-old, Sandra Kim from France. Oh, yeah. And, and it's literally like, it's like she blows Whitney Houston out of the water. It is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. Um, but she's like 13. And she's, you know, and she, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So they changed that. And, yeah, no political anything. -hmm. Oh well, Um, and I guess those are the rules, Uh, and they try to violate them in every way possible. What are you going to say, Rob? Sorry,
3: I was just going to tack on my criteria for a good Eurovision song, which includes, you know, a full balance of energy, spectacle, camp, and vocal ability, which is not really an issue. So, I mean, singing capability is kind of last. Language skill not really important. I mean, there there was a a contestant that yodeled you know you can yodel if you want to so there are criteria that uh are make or break deal breakers for me being how much energy you bring your spectacle behind you the amount of camp that you have if you can sing and uh your language skill you know hats off to you if you're trying to do it in a language that's not yours also known as english
2: Yes, the the abuses of English in Eurovision are amazing. And also the shoehorning of awkward languages into popular culture formats that don't take them. Yes. Disturbing. Um, By the way, I want to get into Dima's performance of Believe right away. However, what I recommend for the faithful listeners of Disinfect, if you want to get the most out of this episode, I recommend you pause... Watch the video of the performance on YouTube and then come back and listen to our analysis. Because I think to Rob's point, Eurovision is as visual as it is oral. So um, let's listen to Dima Balan believe. I I almost can't quite place what song he's stealing from here.
3: He's trying to steal from all of them, actually. I mean, look at the guy's energy. He can't decide whether to sell the song or how he looks while selling the song. And you can totally hear that.
2: Kind of a sub Backstreet Boys underfed Bieber vibe.
4: Yeah, back when the boy bands went solo. I'm thinking to so the, again, geopolitics, this uh, came the year after uh, Belgrad won from Serbia, right? So this was being performed in Serbia, I believe. Yeah, I believe. So when you when you just start singing and you hear the crowd go, whoa, you can tell that Russia is just the favorite of this Serbian crowd.
0: Yeah,
3: the spectacle here, if you're listening and you can't see this, what you've got are three white guys wearing white shirts who have a huge stage fit for like Rammstein, but instead it's all wasted on two backup singers, unlit in the shadows, and three guys in white button-down untucked
2: shirts. These untucked shirts. By the way, awesome. Rob is Rob is is actually missing something key which is which is important to the Russian national identity. One of the three performers on stage is a ice is a ice dancer. He's
3: not an ice dancer. He is a yes, Russian Olympic dancing. gold medalist and three-time <laughs> world champion in figure skating. Ivanji Plushenko. And the guy playing violin, Edwin Martin, he is a he is a violinist to the skating world. That's no lie. That's his title. Violinist to the skating world. And a thing about this this is that it was well documented that Martin played a real Stradivarius on stage. That was the draw. Fancy product placement. A real Stradivarius with an additional draw of the spectacle. It's like, we're serious here. This is a real instrument. I mean, the show is mostly lip sync, so this gesture of this antique violin is pretty basic. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, for your entertainment, Celine Dion featuring Jane Cameron's Oscar. Ugh. Oh, oh, and yeah, it just ends. I mean, the the third guy is obviously Dima Bilan, And the thing is, he's taking all of Eurovision far too seriously. There is no fun in his eyes. His overcommitted passion effectively sucks out the fun and just canceled the camp.
2: I think it's funny. There's the podcast Wind of Change. Did you guys listen to that? Uh, The
4: story scorpions one two. so
2: so essentially there's a podcast called Wind of Change that explores the notion that the scorpion song Wind of Change was actually created by the CIA to foment pro-democracy in previously non-democratic states most of which were part of the United USSR and it goes very in-depth, trying to prove that the CIA actually created the song Wind of Change to bring down the Berlin Wall. And the funny thing about Believe by Dima Balan is it's it sort of tries to be like Wind of Change, this sort of like anthem of unity for, you know, if we all just believe we can be together as this great, you know, world. And it's coming from Russia, which of course is like, you know, shattering and dividing and conquering nations, pitting people against each other. It's kind of like the perfect gaslighting Eurovision entry.
4: You know, don't forget Russia won Eurovision in May of 2008 and in August of 2008 they invaded
2: Georgia. Voila. Unity. Unity. Yes. And again, and again, now getting back we didn't really get into it but a lot of the voting is is tied to how well you're getting along with your neighbor states,
3: uh yeah, a hundred percent if you, if you live in France, you're going to get the support maybe of of uh Belgium and Luxembourg and Spain. but if you're uh germany you're you're not going to get the support from uh, <laughs> Portugal and Spain. no, not at all.
2: And then if you're like a little if you're Estonia, suddenly you have Russia and Poland and you know so getting back to Dima Balan's performance, another thing that we need that's hard to demonstrate in the podcast format is there's two performances for every winner in Eurovision. And so in other words, there's the performance where they win. And then the next year, the winner comes back and is the first song of the Eurovision, the next year's Eurovision contest.
4: Here's how it works. As far as I understand, the country that wins Eurovision gets to host the whole event the following year. Not only does the winning singer get to come back, uh, you know, outside of the competition and say, by the way, here's my new song, but uh, the country that won automatically gets to perform, I think, in like the semifinals and the finals uh, with a totally new singer, a totally new song. And in ever since I've been watching, I don't think any country has won two years in a row.
2: Uh, it used to happen way more, but, uh, so famously Ireland won two years in a row. And, and every time you win, you're, you're the, you're the host city the next year. Yeah. The host country. And it's incredibly expensive to put on Eurovision for a host city and country. So Ireland won two years in a row and they're like, yo, we can't afford to host another Eurovision they tried to lose. They put on the most boring act they could. They tried to lose, and they won again three years in a row. And they're like, I think they were having, like, a terrible economic recession. They're like, we just can't, we just can't do
4: this.
1: Oh, anymore. that's right. You know I mean? Yeah.
4: <laughs> I think I take a note of this, Matt. Ireland won in 1992, I think, with a song called Why Me, which was... This pathetic kind of, I know you love me, but why? Why me? Like, all right, I guess they won. And then the next year was someone named Neve, who won again. And so that was when Ironman was saying, okay, we got to put a stop to this. And next up was these two old guys playing pianos, talking about... What were their names? I don't know. They were like rock and roll kids. Rock and roll
2: I- Rock and Roll Kids. That's the name of the song. It's called Rock and Roll Kids. Go ahead. This is what
4: music used to be like when we were kids, and I guess that was Ireland's idea of a surefire loser. But it was like the producers.
0: <laughs> it was like okay. springtime yes, yes. for they, Hitler.
2: No, Ireland was trying to lose and they so they're like, Okay, shit, we won twice in a row. What are we gonna do? How do we lose? We're gonna get two ancient Irish men. Their names are Paul Harrington and Charlie McGeddon, and they're going to do a song, a, a shamelessly nostalgic song called Rock and Roll Kids about the great music they used to listen to. Now, this is interesting because there are some themes that sort of naturally rise up in Eurovision. Uh, one is, we must bring peace and love to the world. That's often a theme of a Eurovision winner. And then there's the, it's only rock and roll kind of there's a nostalgia of how it used to be better. That's a theme in, in, in Eurovision songs. Like, remember remember when we were young and it used to be better? And then there's the songs that are sung in some native language that you just completely cannot fucking understand what they're talking That's about. That's true, too. Oh, and, and by the way, this is something I noticed going to Amsterdam. Is like, if Turkey would win, then you would hear the Eurovision song in Turkish restaurants for like five years after every time <laughs> you went to Turkish restaurants. yeah am i on to something there is that um getting back to dima Bilan? um so what i was sort of getting at with that sort of like you know the returning hero the returning champion of eurovision the original performance of dima Bilan's believe was embarrassingly anemic like rob was saying it was three guys wearing slacks and untucked shirts slacks untucked shirts a figure skater and a guy with a violin, no staging. They clearly did not think they were going to win. There was no backing at all from the host company, country, other than supplying a Stradivarius and an Olympic athlete. Thinking how other countries process pop music. Somehow a Stradivarius and an Olympic figure skater is going to bring pop music championship to Russia. So, but then. The year after, when Russia is hosting Eurovision, Dima Balan opens the show with Believe. And it is the most over-the-top production you have ever seen in your life. It is like over-the-top, incredibly homoerotic, but in denial of its homoeroticism. So in other words, there's this kind of thing where like, oh shit, we won. And then the next year they like ramp up the special effects and the production value. And it was like a do-over. To show Russian supremacy. To the winners go the spoils of victory. Yes. What's amazing to me about the Demon Balan song is like getting back to like the musical aspect of it. Rob said it's like a boy band song, but sung by a solo singer,
3: and not the good one either.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's not not the Justin Timberlake. No, it's 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 the guy in the Backstreet Boys with the beard who you know has a terrible drug habit. What other significance for you, Rob, in choosing that song?
3: Um. Because it stood out by not being stand-out worthy. Uh, he lacked energy. He, he tried to bring game, but I couldn't see the commitment in his eyes. Uh, what you were talking about, the spectacle. Eurovision is nothing if there's no spectacle. It's all about jib camera shots, lasers, pyro. This had nothing but a skating rink. And a million-dollar violin.
2: Yeah, Um, so they really showcased the
3: song. Yeah, this was a winning song, and I don't believe it deserved to win. It didn't have qualities or criteria that are important for a winning Eurovision song. There was no camp. I mean, they tried to camp, but it just looked like a bad TED Talk. Uh, with his untucked shirt billowing <laughs> in the background.
2: Rob Rob has actually given TED Talks, so he knows of what he speaks. I, I have. S.S. Greg, uh, I think. But yes, we're, we're TEDxers. We have two TED Talk alums here, so they know what they're talking about when they talk about minimal TED Talk staging. I wish there was more camp in
3: it, because Eurovision is all about the all-inclusiveness of camp. But Russia, being the nation of homophobes, stepped on that, sucked out uh, the campness from the performance, and there was there nothing about that song made it worthy of being won.
2: Although the second performance had a lot more camp, they weren't going to lose that time. So they can, and then the homoeroticism really came out. By the way, what's amazing about that second performance of Dima Balan's believe the next year, Greg was talking about like Graham Norton's running commentary, and what's amazing is in the intro of the song. Dima Balan keeps smashing through walls. He's running and he smashes through one wall and then he smashes through another wall wall. and then he smashes through another wall and then another wall. And then suddenly there are dancing girls everywhere and very handsome men touching their chests. So if you've ever been to Russia, the way that they show their might is by making multiples. So, for example, you know, in Saint Petersburg, they copied Venice. See, we can make Venice too. And then, I, when I was in Moscow, there were two copies of the Empire State <laughs> Building. You have one Empire State <laughs> Building, we have two. I had no idea. So, so to have like twenty walls, the guy has to run through. You know what I mean? Like, like any other Eurovision contestant would have like five, <laughs> but he has to run through twenty because it's Russia. It 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 was the foundation for for the Eurovision movie for Dan Andrews' character. It's like. The guy who's clearly gay, who's not, I mean, by the way, I have no idea if Demon Bolan is gay. I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, get him killed in his mother country. But it was so homoerotic, it was, it was, not, it was not having a dialogue with its homoerotic aspect. But a
3: do-over aspect, it refused to own it. Yeah, it was not owning the homoeroticism that is inherent in Eurovision. It's celebrated. It was repressed,
2: and then and then again, it was also the very bland, like "peace and love, we will all be one nation" kind of terrible songwriting. Um, uh, before we get to Greg's choice, I want to, you know, I have two guys here from the Netherlands. Tell me about the Netherlands' relationship to Eurovision.
4: Yeah, so when I started watching Eurovision in the mid nineteen nineties, Dutch people I was watching with were thinking about the last time the Netherlands won, which was like when the European Union was small uh, and when Eurovision was small, when the competition wasn't that fierce, perhaps, uh, but their idea of of winning again was like, okay, you know, we might not even qualify this year. Uh, and then they would play the game of like rooting for the spoiler or rooting for their you know the one they want to win but not the one that they think they will win um sometimes there are betting pools you know like the european cup or the world cup um but yeah mostly uh certainly in in 2019 when it came down to the netherlands versus sweden everyone in the netherlands was like <laughs> if it's eurovision and you're up against sweden Do not bet against Sweden. (laughs) And then the fact that uh, the Netherlands pulled it out uh, at the last minute and and won beating Sweden. It was just – it would be like the Netherlands versus Germany in the World Cup and (laughs) pulling out a last minute goal against
2: Germany to, to win. That's exactly what it was. What was that song, by the way? Do you remember?
4: Duncan Lawrence, Arcade. I've asked professional songwriters in the Netherlands, why was that
2: song so special? And they all go, eh? By the way, I have to say, that song, Arcade by Duncan Lawrence, I think it's actually kind of a good song.
4: It's a good song, and the production values were deliberately stripped down. There's one guy and a piano and some lighting effects. Uh, And in that sense, that that also qualifies for Eurovision. If you're deliberately stripped down and you're like, I have a song, this is the song, listen to the song, uh, then, yeah, that that can work. I believe Sweden's production that year was an American uh, transplant in Sweden who was had a gospel background, and they had a whole big production and everything. It was a good song. It was technically proficient, but again, yeah. Um, was it the most Eurovision of songs?
2: Maybe not. You're bringing up two very interesting points, which are another classic European form is the power ballad, right? I mean, if we're going to break down what are the forms... of of Eurovision. There's the absolutely shameless folk ballad done in the style of the country's ancestors, right? There's the shameless dance pop hit. That sounds like a dance pop hit from 10 years ago, overlaid with folk instruments from the ancestors of the country. There is a power ballad, like a very bad demo of a Justin Bieber song sung by somebody who's never actually spoken English or understands English. There's the song uh, ruining uh, you know the days of old and I miss I miss the great rock and roll of the past and also running through the forest in Bavaria with my shoes off there's the, the there's the clearly no holds barred homoerotic, like I will survive anthem sung by a LGBTQ icon of their country Um, What are some other what are some other what what am I missing here? What am I missing kind of uh, pulled it all
3: together in in a very neat package of all of those kinds of songs. And just the the, the way they're delivered, uh, the everybody takes their heart out and they throw it right on the ground to demonstrate their passion for how they feel in under three minutes.
2: Yeah. And then the other phenomenon that, Greg, you brought up that was interesting is the ringer. The Ringer is, is a fascinating phenomenon in, in Eurovision culture. So there's a song, it's it's called Everybody by Tanal Padar and Dave Benton. And it was the winner from Estonia uh, a few years ago. And how many people from Estonia have a name like Dave Benton? How, 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 how authentically How authentically Estonian is Dave Benton? Okay, he's a black guy that happens to live in Estonia. So, in other words, if you have an authentic American person who actually, likes sang in church and knows how to sing, you roll that person out and you have them perform because they can actually sing in in English.
3: Celine Dion, in 1988, represented Switzerland.
4: She's not Swiss. She was
3: in... Yes. Yeah. uh,
2: She's from Montreal. She was in
3: Dublin at the time. Canadian. And caught the ear of producers and they said would you would you please represent us in switzerland it's like yeah sure why not and won
4: no rule against that
2: so in other words it's like like in the case of switzerland they have performers perform for the country that they're eventually going to live in with all their millions (laughs) Ah. that's the tacit you know that's the i think she actually did move to switzerland celine Dion. At least
4: hid some of her bank – her winnings in the secret bank account.
2: Yeah, which was probably a a you know a consolation prize from the Swiss government for – and that launched her career, that, that particular win. I mean, at least in small European countries you've never heard of.
4: It did. And ironically, if Celine Dion speaks French in Switzerland, they subtitle her.
2: Voila. Because <laughs> she's French-Canadian. Things you learn. By the way, we might point out Switzerland was the host of the first ever um, – Eurovision, and it also won that year, and and it won with uh, Celine Dion. And I think those are the only two wins of Switzerland, uh, which is not a great shock considering Switzerland is not known as a huge exporter of uh, the pop industrial complex. Oh, we got to go. What's going on about? What's going on Netherlands? We have any more Netherlands? So take it, take it, Rob.
3: Oh, okay. Um, As far as the Netherlands competing within uh, the Eurovision, what I know is. They take it as serious as they would a a World Cup or a, a Euro Cup and will fund it as much as possible to uh, place and fund it even more to show and to, to get as far as possible. The, the Dutch have used ringers in the past, like the Dutch pop singer Anouk from Rotterdam. And she competed in 2013 and did... Pretty well with a decent song, uh, but she was a ringer uh and of of uh Dutch origin, just like uh Trincha Osterhaus, uh, as well in the year afterwards uh of, of of competing. And for almost two consecutive years, the Dutch contribution to Eurovision from 2016 to 2018 were all Western-themed. They were country Western-themed songs. Uh the 2018 contribution from Wayland. It was
2: called "Outlaw In 'Em." So there was like a, a country western fan that was the, the the government liaison to Eurovision, and just slotted in country western music. Yes. Again, was it sung in Dutch or English? English, right?
3: The second one was in Dutch. The first one was in English. Yes.
2: Yeah, and again, if you know anything about the Dutch language, I would say it doesn't exactly lend itself. To popular music in the most elegant way, what do you think?
3: It's pretty Germanic. It's uh, it's good for opera, but for pop music, it's a little harsh on the ears, especially with the pronunciation of some words like uh, the ge's, which come out as hey, like Huyamocha. Uh It when you're, it's hard to hold the spit for a good duration. It's. The wettest of all the languages.
2: It's like one of the wettest countries, and it's one of the wettest languages. <laughs> so why would Eurovision be any different? So, so I think this is a key, key time to point out, the Netherlands is actually one of the highest winning countries in Eurovision history. Ireland has the most wins with seven. Sweden, which basically created the popular music we listened to over the last 30 years, has six. And then France, Luxembourg, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands have five wins each. So how Luxembourg snuck in there.
4: And and on a technicality, in 1969, when there were four winners tied, uh, for, and, and it was a shame because the clear winner that year should have been Spain. But yeah, Netherlands and I think Luxembourg snuck in uh, to the top five,
2: whatever, because uh, because of that one weird year. So I think that this is a good time to, to play um, Greg's choice for worst Eurovision winner. Um, you want to introduce it, Greg?
4: Uh, Turkey in 2003. A song that is called Every Way That I Can. And uh, I was watching, I remember, with my wife, who is Dutch. And our, our daughter must have been just... Uh, Two years old at that point, uh, probably would have gone to bed, and we were watching with some family, and uh, just couldn't believe that this awful, <laughs> annoying song did so well, and then in fact won the whole thing.
2: A travesty, a national and international travesty, an incident. And then- now,
4: you we talked about the different categories of uh, Eurovision Song, and I'll let the listener decide. Uh, which category this song falls into?
2: Yeah, why don't we why don't we play the song and then we'll identify the the ridiculous Eurovision tropes that it embodies? Yes. Um. So there we have the uh, the faux ethnic dance music, and, and by the way, a lot of Eurovision is essentially, a lot of Eurovision songs are designed so that um, the native folk dance of the nation can be performed to it, and this is no exception.
4: In the background, they're doing that. Meanwhile, she is singing in English. And it's
0: Britney-esque.
2: Another trope is there are certain performers that just provide a template Fake Shakira is like the default.
0: Wow. So there's a dance break.
2: This is again very fake Shakira.
0: Right? Yes. And then
4: the lyrics. Uh, At some point, it's... You know, there there are songs about female empowerment. There are songs about uh, empowerment of any kind of minority. Uh, This song is very much not that. No. She's going to win back this master of the patriarchy (laughs) Every (laughs) every way that she can to throw herself at his feet. And the way that she says... I'll I'll try I'll die I'll cry to make you love me again. And
0: uh, yeah. Oh, I think oh,
2: interesting. Oh yeah, there's a rap.
0: Little Kim
2: little is little not really scared. Girl. Oh yeah. <laughs> Nothing
0: in the world that could stop me, no sir. Nothing in the world that could stop me, no sir.
2: That's why right. I repeat ziga the same phrase at, ten ziga times.
4: Ziga,
0: uh, yeah.
2: Also, oh, the break. Every Eurodance song has this.
0: So there's an interesting
2: I'll Give you all my love
0: affair.
2: I'll give you all my love affair is the line. And I think I think another interesting thing is you have very talented singers that don't know what they're singing, so their emphasis they'll do like a crazy like Whitney Houston like you know and it's on the completely wrong line the wrong song yeah. the wrong syllable Yeah. Um, so so tell me about that what 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 just epitomizes Eurovision mediocrity there.
0: Uh,
4: you know, you mentioned the ringer as a category and you'd think that there's a I think there's a fake ringer on that song. I think there's someone who's like, "Oh yes, I have been a songwriter for Britney and Shakira and, <laughs> and for Spice Girls. And, uh, and they were like, Oh yes, yes. Tell us the secrets of the best song. Uh, and it's, uh, just, it's like every,
2: every ingredient kind of a, in one.
4: Yeah. Uh, and, and, and yet it it is none of them <laughs> in the end. Um, uh, And a little bit of like folk ballad, ethnic, uh, and, you know, dancing in the background as well. So this is the classic example of a Eurovision entry that all of the, you know, cognoscenti of Eurovision look at. And they say, try again next year. (laughs) Thanks for playing. Good of you to show up. But, you know, this is an entry level. (laughs) But then it won. (laughs) Entry. And then it won. And that should not have happened.
2: Um again, the triumph of mediocrity and bad english speaking um is a killer combination and, and, and again, well, you know that that's where we're biased and what's funny we're native english speakers well i mean we're not we're not trying to do Der commissar i mean you know you, you don't see like you don't see like American <laughs> pop singers being like you know to really break I'm gonna sing in German you know I <laughs> think we are really gonna smash it you know so it's it's always the English, and again. I think that that's sort of those. I mean, I almost want the winner to be in the native language. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah, France will do that. Spain, Portugal.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a little and win. And and, and the reason that is is again another sort of Eurovision trope is like you're like a lot of the winners, a lot of the songs in Eurovision are like this kind of alternate dimension version of a pop song you might've heard in America five or 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And it's been sort of like in Eastern European labs, they try to recreate the pop music DNA. Yes. We must put it in computer and see what comes out. Yes. The computer says it's perfect pop song. So we will sing this. And then we'll make two of them. Algorithms. Um, you get these sort of weird songs written by committee. There's almost like a metaphysics simulacra kind of <laughs> Phil K. Dick. <laughs> it's like a pop song that sounds like a pop song on the radio. Yeah. It, it, it's got big production, but it's never going to be on the fucking radio. No one's going to listen to that shit. No, because it can only exist uh, on the
3: stage of the theatrics of Eurovision. It can't exist in the vacuum of not being able to see it. You need the synergy of seeing it, the dancing, the lasers, the pyro, and then a halfway decent song that has been created by committee. And it is
4: amazing. We should take a moment to say for anybody who's not living in Europe or hasn't experienced Eurovision, it's... Okay, it's admittedly bizarre that every year... There's a like multinational contest to figure out the best pop song. Why are none of these songs heard on the radio anywhere outside?
2: Why are they not good if they're supposed to be the best pop songs ever?
4: Yeah, you'd think it would be a, a, a great method for determining what songs are categorically, objectively good. And yet...
2: Uh, and what's interesting, but what you get is like, you get a substandard version of like whatever David Guetta song was big two years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is, you know what I mean? With some bazookies.
4: Yeah. Right.
3: I think the reason that Eurovision is so popular because it's sports for people who think football is too violent. It's an opportunity to cheer a country that is not just athletics and the fans of Eurovision are the most passionate. They're like footballers. They're intense. They have an over-the-top commitment to the attraction that is Eurovision. Um, My wife and I have friends who live in Atlanta who fly to Europe, uh, who went to Sweden for Eurovision to watch that. And he paid top dollar to do it, but it was the time of his life. The fans are so crazy supportive of it. Um, it was, okay, so like a couple of years back, I was walking by the Melkvech, And the Melkvech is one of Amsterdam's best concert venues. And there was a line a good thousand feet long, wrapped around the corner, waiting to get in. This was at like 4 p.m. And I stopped one of the people and said, what are you waiting for? And they said, we are waiting. For the semi, semi, semi-final simulcast of Eurovision, the doors weren't even opening for another three hours. The passion and commitment of the people, the Europeans, the uh, the Americans who get it, uh, is unparalleled. It's the only, the closest you can come are to sports fans. But the thing is, there's no violence in the sports.
4: Yeah, Rob, if you mentioned the comparisons to European sports and football. Uh, one of the mainstays of, of of football is the injuries or the feigned injuries and trying to draw a penalty from the referee. I think that's a missed opportunity with Eurovision. And it, I'm not actually kidding, you know, because some of these uh, productions are so technologically ambitious. And with some of the like pyrotechnics or whatever – and knowing how many times or how few times these acts get to perform on stage with a real run through a real sound check and with all the special effects it's not uh as much as you might think and some of these guys are kind of like (laughs) being you know yanked up in the air there are flames going on they're sometimes putting their lives in jeopardy and um if you see in the movie Eurovision, you'll get to see like Will Farrell, Richard McAdams, there's your sound check. You get five minutes. Oh, we're not really ready. And you're done. <laughs> like, but there's no but <laughs> you're done. <laughs>
3: like that. And it's it's miraculous that there aren't more technical gaffes within Eurovision. It's yeah. uh the thing is though, yeah. when each country performs, they go from one semifinal to another semifinal to another semifinal. And they don't change the routine. They practice a year in advance for this. And to get to where they are, they don't make
2: mistakes. There's also, um, for contestants, Eurovision is a two-day affair. So the day before the broadcast, they perform for the judges. And they do the exact same show that the entire world sees in an empty arena, and then the judges who are all called from the music business of their respective com- countries. And so the judges put in their votes on Friday. And then the world votes on the actual performance Saturday night. And so, um, so we're actually getting to an interesting point naturally, which is so great uh, when that happens to you in the Dick Cavett sense of the term listeners have no fucking idea who Dick Cavett is. <laughs> Google it. What constitutes a bad Eurovision song and a good Eurovision song? And what I've discovered in my profound research, it's a fine line between what's a good Eurovision song and what's a bad Eurovision song. Conversely, again, we're talking about a lot of what's terrible about Eurovision. And we actually have to point out, like, I think everybody in this conversation has a lot of affection for Eurovision. We're kind of hating on it. But you'd kind of miss it if it was gone. <laughs> and, and you kind of do learn about the world from watching it. So in other words, the worst Eurovision songs are often the most memorable. That's for sure.
3: Yeah. I mean, the most well-remembered Eurovision song, Waterloo from ABBA. Their entry into Eurovision was Waterloo. That was their first foray into pop music. That's the only Eurovision song that I could sing for you. All of the other ones, I, I do not remember. Yeah,
2: exactly. By the way, Waterloo is an amazing song. Like, I never understood the lyrics as a kid. It's really a crazy song, um, but great. Brilliant. I mean, it's... It's so over mm-hmm. the top. And it's in English. Yeah. And it, yeah. and in English. So what's interesting is, is, is Rob just said he cannot remember or sing any other Eurovision hit other than Waterloo. And so I went through and I was like, what are the good Eurovision songs? Okay, I would argue that Euphoria by Lorene from Sweden, which was the 2012 winner, I think that's a good song. I've heard that on the radio, and it works. By the way, some Eurovision songs become regional and European hits, but they don't have a lot of cultural last to them, uh, if that makes any sense. They're even almost more ephemeral than a top 40, regular top 40 song but but euphoria is kind of it's an amazing performance i don't know if you remember it um and it's it's a it's a moroccan swedish woman so it sort of gives you a you know like a look at multicultural sweden which is usually in denial of this multiculturalism Um, she kills it her performance is amazing the hook is amazing and the production is un, it's like so technologically assured, and it's it's almost like this kind of like Bjork tech performance. It, it, it's like the perfect Eurodance song. I mean, you got to give it up for it.
1: Right, Totes. Um
2: Yeah, Conchita worst Rides Like a Phoenix," yeah. I think, is a fantastic song. You know, it it with
4: the orchestral section, you know, the strings and everything, it's so very empowering. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's yeah, like,
2: brave too. It's like. Um, it's like Gloria Gaynor does a Bond theme.
4: Ooh. oh, that's a great, nice, Matt. Yeah, great
2: pairing. Um, Love, shine a light. Love, shine a light by Katrina and the Waves is pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not walking on sunshine, but for a uh, you know a big song on the continent, it kind of, it, it kind of does the business. What do you think?
3: That was the UK's last decent entry. Uh, you know what was that? Nineteen ninety-seven, and it was in Ireland
4: during the end of the Troubles.
2: Yes. Hmm. Ireland in Eurovision is just a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating thing, period. Um, speaking of Ireland, another great one. I mean, this one is incredible. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this name. Oh, boy. Um, well, it's, the song is In Your Eyes. It was the winner in 1993. Neve. Okay, so it Neve Cavanaugh. And I'd say she's one of the greatest singers I've ever heard in my life. She's Whitney. She's. Celine, I mean, she, it is one of the greatest vocal performances I've ever seen. Um, And you've never heard it on the radio. And you've never heard it on the radio. Oh, this is an interesting one. Brotherhood of Man is a British group, and they won um, in 1976 for Save Your Kisses for Me. (laughs) Uh, I blew Brotherhood of Man had a couple other hits in in England, in the UK. Yeah. Um, but but what's it? What I what I learned listening to Save Your Kisses for Me again, it's not a good song. But Susan the Banshees totally stole it for Kiss Them for Me. So it's literally, and I was Is like, that right? It, so it's like 1970 seventy nineteen. Let's see, what's the year here? Hold on. So, yeah, Save Your Kisses for Me came out in nineteen seventy six. Susie, Sus- bye, bye, baby. bye bye. Susie definitely heard it and in it 10 years later or whatever because Kiss Them For Me came out. Uh, Take Me To Your Heaven by Charlotte Nilsson is a pretty good Waterloo homage. It's not bad. Um, Sweden. I think Arcade by Duncan Lawrence, your Netherlands homie. It's kind of like a really good Maroon 5 song. <laughs> you know what I mean? It lodges in the brain. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like a payphone. You know what I mean? It's like arcade payphone, payphone arcade. You know what's what's an what's an uh, archaic uh, weird thing from our past that we can reference that doesn't really exist anymore? Um, Heroes by Monzer is a pretty good David Geta ripoff. I love that song. Yeah, I think it's good.
4: Matt Deal, can I take a moment? I I, uh, I just realized you asked about voting earlier and yeah. about the announcement of the the, the 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 scoring. For years and years, Eurovision was only the country by country jury right like music professionals or industry professionals uh, and only recently they added a, a, a public voting line into the winning calculations you know with the prevalence of blank's got talent or the X factor or whatever and you know phone in now for your favorite uh, entry you know the lines are closing. And in the case of uh, the Netherlands in 2019, Sweden was the winner up until the public vote was factored in. And then the result did flip.
2: The drama continues.
4: It's Eurovision. It's all about the drama.
2: Oh, yeah. So I think now we should segue to sort of my choice for worst Eurovision song, which is also probably my favorite Eurovision song. So I th- uh, I yep, know exactly I've seen these guys going.
3: live. They bring it.
2: Oh my God. Okay, so um, 2006, the, the Finnish rock group Lordi, spelled L-O-R-D-I, performed their song Rock and Roll Hallelujah. Yeah. I cannot stress enough. If you were going to pause the podcast and watch the video of the performance, this is the one to do it. This is the groundbreaker. This, to me, there's no way you can say it's a good song. Technically, it's a bad song, but it may be one of the greatest <laughs> songs ever recorded and maybe one of the greatest performances ever recorded. So I guess without further ado, let's, 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 let's kick it to Hard Rock Hallelujah by Lordy. Hard Rock! Sing along, everybody. Hard,
0: Hard rock. rock Hallelujah! Hallelujah.
2: So it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's like the um, the Muppets uh,
0: Animal Voice.
3: It's like Rob Zombie.
2: Yeah, with a slight uh, Finnish accent, or not so slight, with a Nordic tint.
0: It's,
2: it's also kind of reminds me of like uh, like wasp fuck like a beast with with no sex (laughs) (laughs) Uh, hard rock hallelujah that part that part is stolen from poison by Alice Cooper oh yeah it sounds a lot like it yeah (laughs) stealing from other big hits is another Eurovision tradition of course The true believers,
0: thou shalt be saved Brothers and sisters, you shall
3: the faith His Nordic enunciation of English is so overpowering
0: It's amazing yep.
2: So he's talked about the fatherland, the new king I mean, it's it's kind of disturbing that this is not an anthem George R. R. Martin yeah.
4: had not This whole, this inspired Game of Thrones The, the people of the North
0: Rock and Roll
2: Angels we So he says Rock and Roll Angels and at this point his his wings come out
3: in slow motion
2: It takes about slow 15
3: seconds <laughs> to fully extend his wings
2: This is by the way when you watch it it's one of the greatest editing um, achievements of Eurovision this song
4: I just love the female backup singer. Oh, (laughs) yes. On the keyboards. Oh, the burn victim?
3: Yeah. (laughs) She's so happy, though. She's a happy zombie. Rock and roll zombie. Slipknot beget Lordy beget Ghost. That's the line. hallelujah.
0: Hard rock, hallelujah. Hard rock hallelujah. Hard rock, yeah. away, hard, Rock hallelujah.
2: I mean, I'm, I'm I'm speechless. It's so good. This song so sucks I mean,
3: ass so hard, but it rocks so hard.
2: <laughs> it comes to the other side. It's like it's a little.
3: Hard, rock. Would I buy their album? No fucking way. Would I buy a ticket to see them? I have, and I will again. <laughs> Where did you see them live, Rob? I saw Lordi perform in 2012, so they were <laughs> still touring at this point in the suburb of Amsterdam known as Amstelveen. They had, they were full makeup, full prosthetics, wow. uh, some pyro. Uh, if you look closely on their guitars in the Eurovision segment, you can see that they had pyro capability but they were not triggered. Each of their guitars could like Ace fraley shoot sparks and fire.
2: So so you know obviously we're in a audio medium. How would you describe the spectacle to your grandmother that has terrible cataracts?
3: Imagine Halloween and you want to dress like the god of thunder and you have a large budget to buy rubber and prosthetics. Everybody's face looks ghoulish Zombie-esque, necrotic almost, contact lenses that are, uh, make your eyes look dead, uh, scars, beards, horns embedded in your forehead, a lot of leathers and cod pieces and guitars, your axes shaped like axes. So it's, it's really kiss and guar put together in a Nordic fashion. They wouldn't be uh, so surprised uh, if they were to show up on the doorstep of a church in Sweden.
2: (laughs) I mean, the visual is so insane. It's essentially Slipknot meets Motley (laughs) Crue in Burning Man (laughs) as dressed by um, the Wildings in Game of Thrones. There you go. Yeah, the Wildings. That's it. It's, I think it's a good song because it actually takes elements of every kind of bad song and puts it in. It's like hair metal, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, yep. uh, Wasp, um, Guar. In other words, it's so extreme and so banal at the same time. I mean, it's like art. It's almost avant-garde.
3: Yeah, it was avant-garde because it was such a departure from every other pop song yeah. Eurovision hosted. This was the first metal song that achieved this status of Eurovision winner. Now, other competitors now, they're not going in the vein of heavy metal. They're they're going more towards uh, Nine Inch Nails, Gothic Emo, a little darker, not as operatic uh, in its expanse.
2: So we should probably end up here. You know, we end usually by sort of talking about the critical take on, on the subject. And so I found this from The Independent Eurovision can, can also be viewed as a kind of cultural history of our evolving and sometimes dubious musical tastes. If you thought Brexit was a disaster, let this be a, your reminder that European votes have been throwing up some very questionable results for more than half a century. What do you say?
3: I gotta say, you know, there is a, a place for quinoa and there's a place for red vines. Eurovision... Is the red vines?
2: But before we end, before we end, the first post pandemic, they canceled Eurovision last year. What's the vibe on the streets of Amsterdam for Eurovision twenty twenty one?
3: Tickets are hard to come by to get to the ahoy in Rotterdam where it's being held. Uh, they have not released how many people will be actually uh, uh, in attendance just yet. People are excited. It's a little muted because of the pandemic, but it's 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 a bright ray of sunshine in an otherwise crappy. Uh, twenty 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 one. You can't keep a good country down.
2: So who is the who is the contestant? Do you know, do you know who the, the the Dutch contestant is, or has that been a closely held secret?
4: It's the same guy who was uh, singing the song for the Netherlands uh, last year, twenty twenty, and he had an entry uh, which he then scrapped to write a new entry for the, this second time around, Eurovision 2021. Jengu Macroy Sorry, I'm going to look at his name right now because I can't say it properly if I'm not careful. Uh, he's part, he's representing the Surinamese culture, uh, former colonial, you know, Surinamese culture in the Netherlands. His name is uh, Jengu Macroy his entry for this year, the new song that he wrote, you know, for, for this uh, 2021 Eurovision, uh, is, I think even more, um, uh, callback phrase of, uh, you know, broko me, which is more like Sernamese, uh, Patois, uh, which, yeah, is from like the slave times. You will not break me. Uh, and it's, I think it's playing up, you know, the sentiment of, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter of, uh, you know, that is very much, you know, I think there are still protests going on uh, in runner. So, yeah, I think there, there there's some buzz, for sure.
2: Holland is a very multicultural country. And it has its own sort of currents in that area that it needs to face. It is facing. It doesn't have a choice but to face. And so I think that's kind of interesting that that, you know, I mean, I think that's a, that's that it's a, in other words, it shows that 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 eurovision is a way to sort of take the temperature kind of stuff you know that cultural what's happening in the culture so on that note um, i think we should end but in 2021 eurovision will rise like a phoenix <laughs> that's true <laughs> okay good night thank you thank you matt
4: thank you matt
0: <laughs> was created by Boris Bernstein and Matt Deal. produced by Sean Lewis and Esther Yoon. Theme music by Jeremy Clark, aka Mr. 66. Artwork by Bill McMullen, aka Billions Make Billions. If you want to tell us how much you love or hate, disinfect, or wish to purchase an extremely overpriced commemorative mug, oven mitt, or t-shirt, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and disinfectpodcast.com. You can also contact us at info at disinfectpodcast.com Please like, subscribe, donate, all that shit Thank you and see you next episode to disinfect more of music's worst songs Wherever fine podcasts are chilled Copyright, Giant Step 2020, and whatever other necessary boilerplate, legal mumbo jumbo, blah, 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 you hear at the end of your favorite podcasts.